This is a special edition of Outlook, featuring a presentation which took place at the Canadian Federation of the Blind Convention over Zoom on May the 1st, 2021. On Radio Western. Let's introduce next Daryl Jones, big supporter of the Canadian Federation of the Blind. We really appreciate everything that Daryl does, and I think it is now time for his CNIB Monopoly Report presentation. So without further ado, I don't think I'm going to say anything else because there's a lot of important info coming up that we really all need to be listening to and learning from. So let's, let's take, take it over to Daryl Jones. Good day, everybody, and uh, um, good, good that uh, you came to, to listen to the presentation here today. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, my name, as Brian said, is Daryl Jones, and I am a friend and supporter of the CFD. Uh, I went to the University of Victoria, where I got two BAs and an MA in, in Applied Economics. Most of my working career was spent uh, managing um, British Columbia's public sector pension plans. When I retired in 2013, we were the third largest institutional investor in the country. We had $100 billion under our administration, and I was the Senior Vice President of Research and Risk Measurement. I am a sighted Canadian, and I wish to acknowledge at the start of my talk today that I haven't had any direct personal dealings with the CNIB or their staff or any of their volunteers. I'm sure over the past 103 years, many fine and caring individuals have worked for the organization and undoubtedly they have helped many blind and visually impaired Canadians. So my criticism today is not directed at CNIB's line staff or their volunteers, but rather at Canada's approach of relying on a single nonprofit company to provide critically important services for our blind citizens. For most of our life, I was like the vast majority of sighted Canadians and operated under the assumption that Canada's blind were being well served by the CNIB. It was only when I became friends with Doris and Oriano Belusic and other members of the CFD that I came to recognize that how badly our approach was failing some blind Canadians, particularly those that lost their eyesight early in their lives. An early surprise for me was learning that blind Americans generally receive much more help and support from their governments than blind Canadians receive from ours. I suspect that like most Canadians, my natural tendency is to think that our social programs are always superior to those to our neighbor to the South. I'm sure I don't need to tell a CFB audience this, but that isn't the case when it comes to services for the blind. I think there are three main reasons why services for the blind are better in the United States. The first is the National Federation of the Blind and the tireless work of their founder and first president, Dr. Jacobus Tenbrook, a truly remarkable man. Dr. Tenbrook helped to organize America's blind and turn them into a political force. Collectively, they pushed their governments to improve their lives as well as the life opportunities of those that followed in their footsteps. The NFD's efforts lead me to the second reason why services for the blind are better in the United States. U.S. governments have made helping the blind and visually impaired their responsibility and part of America's social safety net. As a result, their state and federal governments actively participate in helping their blind citizens adapt to life without eyesight. In Canada, only Quebec has accepted responsibility for providing training for its visually impaired citizens. All of the other governments have failed to include services for the blind as part of Canada's social safety net. Instead, they've adopted a passive role and simply giving grants and lottery money to the CNIB 
and left it to a single nonprofit company to, to both determine and look after the needs of the blind. A clear example of the difference between the two countries can be seen in the area of library services. Blind Americans have access to a very large collection of accessible reading material through their state governments and through their federal government in the Library of Congress. Canada, on the other hand, is largely left that relied on CNIB and then its offspring, CELA, to provide accessible re reading material for Canadians with print disabilities. Although the accessible content has improved in recent years, we still have a highly inequitable library system. As Canadians have only access to a small portion of, of reading material that's available to sighted library users or that is available for Americans with print disabilities. The third reason that for the difference between Canada and the United States is blind Americans have choices when it comes to their service providers. Visually impaired Americans can go to a government funded training center or they can get public funding to attend a, a, a private center run by a nonprofit. At its 2020 convention, the NFB reported that over 200 private organizations provide services for Americans visually impaired. A competitive environment encourages organizations to be innovative, efficient, and client-focused. Giving all the public money allocated to help the blind to a single organization has effectively given the CNIB a government-sanctioned national monopoly over providing services for the blind in Canada. This, combined with CNIB's aggressive fundraising campaigns, means that virtually all the money intended to help Canada's blind ends up in their coffers. Not surprisingly, the end result is the CNIB is the only option for most visually impaired Canadians when it comes to learning the skills and gaining the self-confidence that are needed for living independently and finding gainful employment and enjoying a full life. Having a government endorsed monopoly for 103 years has enabled the CNIB to grow into the one of the largest and most influential nonprofits in the country. They have a well-paid executive, a staff of about a thousand, and 50 offices, about half of which are in Ontario. According to CNIB's T3010 charity return, the company spent 48 million on staff compensation in 2018. Total expenditures in that year were 79 million. The company received 32 million in government grants and another 10 million in lottery and gaming revenue. Large long-standing monopolies have never been a good thing for consumers. Ask any Canadian who is old enough to remember what it was like to deal with the phone and cable companies when landlines were the only game in town. Long distance prices were outrageous, the organizations were bureaucratic nightmares to deal with, and the service frankly was crappy. However, consumers basically had two choices. They could use the local phone or cable companies or they could go without the services. The companies had little reason to change what they'd been doing for decades as they had captive clients and their prices and profits were regulated. While Canadian consumers still have lots of gripes with their phone and cable companies, we now have choice and believe me, services and prices are much better today. But that's the way things are supposed to work. Competition is supposed to be the foundation of our free market consumer driven economy. The federal government has long recognized the importance of competition. And ever since the 1920s, there has been federal legislation designed to encourage competition and combat monopolies. The federal government has also created the Competition Bureau to serve as an independent law enforcement agency to administer and enforce Canada's Competition Act. 
The following passages come from the Competition Bureau's website and explain why competition is an important thing for consumers. Competition in the marketplace is good for Canadians. Competition benefits Canadians by keeping prices low and keeping the quality and choice of products and services high. With fair and vigorous competition, businesses must produce and sell the products consumers want and offer them at prices that they're willing to pay. That means in a competitive market, the consumer holds the power. When there is limited competition and consumer choice, businesses can dictate their terms. This can lead to businesses offering products and services that are too expensive, of low quality, or lacking the features that consumers want. Without competition, consumers must accept these inferior products and services or go without. However, when businesses operate in a healthy, competitive environment, consumers get to choose the best option available that meets their needs and price point. Fair competition means that businesses must make a strong case to each consumer and convince them that their products and services are the superior choice. This translates to more and better products and services that meets the diverse range of consumer tastes. In short, more variety, more features, higher quality, and more value for consumers. As consumer preference inevitably shifts, a competitive market will reflect these changes in the products and services that it delivers. This pushes businesses that excelled at meeting yesterday's needs to either adapt or fall behind because of the pressure of existing competitors or new entrants into the marketplace. When, when markets only have one or a few sellers, consumers may not even realize what they're missing. In a competitive market, new entrants or existing businesses continuously innovate and improve productivity to offer consumers better products and services at lower prices. Today, with Canada's policymakers, it is the Competition Bureau's responsibility to protect competitive markets and ensure that we all experience the full benefits of healthy competition. So there's widespread recognition that consumers benefit from a competitive marketplace and are poorly served by monopolies, except of course, when it comes to providing services for the blind. Strangely, in this one area, sighted Canadians and our governments seem to automatically assume that the blind consumers are best served by a single national monopoly. Another surprise in my blindness education came that learning that, that despite receiving hundreds of millions, if not billions from governments over the past century, the CNIB does not operate a single residential training center in the country. A center where young adults and working age blind Canadians can stay for nine to 12 months and work daily with highly qualified instructors to develop the skills and self-confidence to achieve the life that they want. Apparently, intense residential training programs in the United States have good track records in helping working-age blind gain increased independence and finding paid employment. I have met and read the stories of several Canadians who have been lucky enough to attend such training centers in the United States, and each of them have reported that it was a life-changing experience. Attending the Louisiana Center for the Blind even inspired Elizabeth Alon to start the Pacific Training Center for the Blind here in Victoria one of the few competitors to CNIB's training monopoly. It appears to me that the CNIB has been operating under the same delivery model for decades. Specifically, it provides services to the blind through its staff and volunteers in its regional offices. I've been told that the amount of training and support that a blind person receives depends upon many factors, including the person's proximity to the nearest CNIB office, 
the office's workload, how many years the person has been visually impaired, the quality of the local staff and volunteers, and the amount of funding that the CNIB receives from the provincial or territorial government. The key point is there's no national standard, but rather it's left to each office to determine the level of service that they're able to provide to their local blind customers with their allotted time and resources. I've heard many more complaints than positive re reviews about CNIB's training and bureaucracy. However, one of my former colleagues did tell me that he and his family had a very positive experience with the corporation. His elderly mother lost her eyesight late in life and their staff and volunteer helped make her last few years more comfortable. He was particularly grateful that they introduced her to talking books as they became her primary source of entertainment. It appears to me, again, as that outside observer, that the CNIB services have traditionally been geared towards their elderly clients. This makes some sense because most Canadians who lose their eyesight do so late in life. It's also much easier and less expensive to address the needs of the elderly. Even better, it can be financially rewarding as the CNIB has historically received many large donations from wills and estates of its grateful patrons. In fact, it took two full pages in CNIB's latest annual report just to list, list the 150 or so estates that have left gifts to the corporation. Obviously, the training needs of a 20-year-old blind person with a lifetime ahead of them are fundamentally different and more complex than those of a 90-year-old. As I understand it, most young and working-age blind receive relatively limited help from the CNIB, particularly if their blindness is a pre-existing condition. I've heard estimates of unemployment among the working-age blind range from 70 to 90%, although you wouldn't know there was a problem if you looked at CNIB's website. On their website, the corporation reports that their pro work programs will provide you with the skills and resources to attain your career ambitions, thrive academically at every stage, and hone your abilities as an entrepreneur or mentor. I've been told the reality is the vast majority of working age blind Canadians will give up looking for paid employment and struggle to make ends meet living on disability assistance. This, of course, assumes that their living arrangements don't disqualify them from being eligible to collect disability assistance. But I'm digressing. So back to the story of the Monopoly paper. Nonprofit companies aren't exempt from the Competition Act. In fact, the definition of business in the Competition Act explicitly states that it includes businesses that raise funds for charitable and other nonprofit purposes. This led me to believe that the CFB had grounds to complain to the Competition Bureau about the CNIB's market domination over fundraising and providing service to the blind. I discussed the idea with Mary Ellen and some other members of the executive and received their support to write a discussion paper in support of a CFB complaint to the Competition Bureau. The executive was very helpful in providing me feedback and comments on various drafts. Our hope was the Competition Bureau would look into the matter and write an independent policy paper on whether blind Canadians were being well served by Canada's reliance on a single national corporation. Much of the information in the report came from my involvement in the CFB and listening to the stories of blind Canadians. It was also supplemented by public information available on the internet, such as reports from major media outlets. A lot came from CNIB's own website. There is a lot of information on their website if you can get past the marketing and corporate branding. I also read Graham McCree's book, The Politics of Blindness, and of course, 
The Blind Canadian magazine was a valuable resource. It's easy to find some good historical information in those publications. In some ways, the CNIB resembles the traditional monopoly, similar to those that I studied in my undergraduate economics classes. I can recall a favorite professor of mine, Dr. Colin Jones, no relation to me, telling our class that the number one goal of monopolies was to protect the status quo and their market share. One key way that CNIB protects its market share is through aggressive fundraising and sucking up all the money allocated to help the blind. According to Charity Intelligence Canada, which is a donor information company, in 2019, CNIB spent over $12 million on its fundraising efforts, and they received $24.7 million in donations from the public. That means for every dollar donated to the CNIB, the company spent 49 cents on fundraising. After taking another five cents off for administration, that leaves only 46 cents available for their causes. In its most recent annual report, the CNIB stated that only 20% of their revenue goes to fundraising and 3% for administration. Obviously, this is a big difference from what Charity Intelligence Canada's reported. I assume the difference is because CNIB based their calculation on total revenue, which also includes government grants, lottery money, and profits made from CNIB's business operations, its investments, and the selling of properties. Charity Intelligence, on the other hand, based its calculation on fundraising costs relative to charitable donations. From a monopolistic perspective, CNIB's domination over both government grants and private fundraising creates enormous barrier of entry for someone like Elizabeth who wants to operate a competing nonprofit service. But CNIB's fundraising serves another purpose as well. Fundraising helps maintain CNIB's brand and reinforces the image in the mind of the general public that they're out there and looking for after the interests of the blind. Maintaining public support for the CNIB is mission critical for protecting the status quo. Over the past six months, I've seen CNIB's guide dog commercials at least 30 or 40 times on a wide variety of TV shows and networks. I've seen them run on CTV, Global, The Food Network, and CNN. I even saw one of their ads on the Home and Garden channel on the TV screen while I was at my dentist's office. I'll talk more about these commercials in a, in a little bit. For now, the key point is that these fundraising campaigns help protect the status quo by reassuring the public that the CNIB is out there looking after the needs of the blind, even during the COVID-19 pandemic. CNIB tries to, or behaves like a traditional monopoly and it tries to capture all the revenue opportunities available in the value chain. CNIB established Sella, another nonprofit company, to lend out its historic library. And these two affiliated companies continue to be the dominant source of accessible reading material for Canadian libraries. CELA receives grant money from the government to increase its accessible content and then charges the provincial government and municipal libraries for the light rights to lend its private library to their print disabled citizens. The establishment of CELA is an instance where CNIB used its monopoly muscle to impose a model that had been rejected by stakeholder groups. Therefore, I thought it would be beneficial to go into the story in a little more detail in a CFB complaint to the Competition Bureau. I will refer you to the report for the full story, but I'll provide a general overview for those that are not aware of CELA's creation. Canadians with print disabilities have traditionally been poorly served by, by the public library system. It was particularly bad for Canadians who were print disabled for reasons other than vision loss 
as the only way they could access CNIB's historic collection was through partnership agreements and interlibrary loans. In 2007, the federal government attempted to address this, the problem facing uh, print disabled Canadians by creating the Initiative for Equitable Library Access. During the initial public consultations, it was apparent that there was a lot of dissatisfaction with users' access to accessible material, as well as CNIB's involvement in the public library system. There was also hope among many of the stakeholder groups that the federal government would follow the U.S. lead and would establish the Library and Archives Canada as a coordinating body for Canadians with print disabilities. However, the federal government quickly quashed that idea and through its support behind a proposal made by the CNIB, whereby it would set up a separate nonprofit company and use it as a central hub for the production and distribution of material for all print disabled Canadians. While the federal government and a hired consultant attempted to sell CNIB's proposal, there was strong pushback from all key stakeholder groups. User groups wanted a publicly funded, publicly run and publicly accountable library system. They saw CNIB's proposal as merely dressing up the status quo. Provincial librarians wanted a system that was consistent with standard library principles. While provincial governments, who are the primary funders of library services, they wanted a governance structure that was accountable to provincial authorities, not to a nonprofit's board of directors. Recognizing there was strong and unified opposition against CNIB's proposal, the Library and Archives Canada abruptly ended the initiative. Despite the initiative's failure, the federal government continued to support CNIB's model, and in 2011, the, the federal government reportedly made a one-time grant of $7 million to the CNIB in support of its accessible library services. The failure of the federal government's initiative, combined with a significant and abrupt increase in CNIB's lending fees, prompted librarians from several provinces to come together and establish the National Network for Equitable Library Services, or NELS. NELS was launched in December 2013 as a repository of accessible material where the content would be owned and sustained by Canadian public libraries. If CNIB wanted to maximize the benefit from its historic collection, they would have simply donated it to NELS and Canada's public libraries. This would have allowed for the widest distribution of, of accessible materials to print disabled Canadians at the lowest cost to taxpayers. It would have been entirely appropriate given that most of the money that was used to build and digitize CNIB's collection came from the various levels of government. However, five months after NELS launch, the CNIB proceeded with its proposal that had been rejected by the stakeholders. Specifically, CNIB established the Center for Equitable Library Access, or CELA, to provide national library services for all print disabled Canadians. Although CELA is created as a nonprofit corporation, make no mistake, it is in the business of providing accessible content to print disabled Canadians on a subscription basis. Although Canadian libraries originally and initially resisted paying some of the higher borrowing fees to CNIB, most acquiesced to CELA. In reality, they had little choice. Failure to pay the fees not only meant that the disabled members would be denied access to CNIB's historic collection, but it was also a PR nightmare, as both disabled members and the CNIB complained loudly to media outlets about the loss of content. Today, according to Sella's uh, website, it's fully, it, it's fully funded to serve 97% of the estimated 3 million Canadians with print disabilities. I found it difficult to find much information about Sella's finance with internet searches or from its website. However, I did find out that in 2017, 
Vancouver's public library paid $43,693 to Sella, and in the same year, the Surrey Public Library paid $31,702. These are two large municipalities in BC, but remember, this is a national service where taxpayers have largely paid for the content. The political clout of the CNIB is illustrated by the fact that in recent years, the federal government has given $3 million to Sella to increase the size of its collection, but only $1 million to, to Nels. So the federal government is giving Sella three times as much funding as it gives to Nels, despite the fact that Nels is owned by the library system and does not charge subscription fees to municipal libraries. I cannot say I understand that policy from a taxpayer perspective, but I think it illustrates the political clout of the CNIB, particularly with the federal government. In addition to dominating training, rehabilitation, employment, and library services, the CNIB is also a big player in the retail market and reportedly serves over 15,000 customers per year. When I wrote the Monopoly Report, the retail operation was called Shop CNIB, but the name has recently been rebranded to CNIB Smart Life, your one-stop accessibility shop. Smart Life's prices are as high, if not higher, than other retailers, but this is okay because any profits that the company make from selling its products to its blind customers go back to the corporation and support its programs and, of course, the salaries of its staff. Smart Life's staff members are called coaches, and apparently they op operate out of Smart Life centers, which I assume is your local CNIB office. The coaches will help you find and learn how to use the products that they'll be happy to sell to you. One thing a traditional monopoly will do to protect its market domination is acquire any pesky competitors that are successfully encroaching on their turf. If you cannot beat them, then buy them, which of course CNIB did when it acquired Frontier Computing, a leading supplier of assisted technologies for the visually impaired. I've recently been told that the CNIB has using the leverage that it gained from its acquisition of Frontier Computing to negotiate exclusive di distribution rights with some manufacturers. Significantly, the CNIB even brags about these exclusive arrangements on Smart Life's website. The corporation says, and I quote, we are proud to have exclusive partnerships with some of Canada's most innovative technology and pro product makers, meaning we offer cutting edge tools you won't find anywhere else. I can see how an exclusive partnership benefits CNIB's retail operation, but what are the supposed benefits for blind consumers? Without competition from other retail sellers, the prices for these products will inevitably increase, and that hurts the blind consumer in their pocketbook. You either pay CNIB's price or you go without. Of course, CNIB's exclusive arrangement with manufacturers also hurts other retailers of accessible products. They can no longer sell product lines that they've had for years, and this hurts their sales and profitability. In the long run, exclusivity arrangements will result in fewer businesses selling accessible products and technologies. And clearly the last thing that blind Canadians need is less competition. The CNIB was late entering the guide dog business as it only graduated its first six dogs in November, 2018. However, the company now appears to be jumping in the market in a big way and certainly has made the guide dog program the driving force in this year's fundraising efforts. It's hard for me to believe that the CNIB won't have a lock on the domestic guide dog market in the next few years. In some ways, the CNIB is an archetype monopoly, but in other ways, it's very unique and very different from any of the monopolies I studied in Dr. Jones's class on industrial organization. The one thing that always blows my mind is how many hats the company wants to wear at the same time. 
Not only does CNIB have a monopoly over providing service for the blind, but is a self-appointed advocate and public spokesman for blind Canadians, as well as being a major researcher on blind-related issues. So the company is monopolistic supplier, lead researcher, consumer advocate, and public spokesman, all for the same group of citizens, you. Would the CNIB ever push governments to include services for the blind in Canada's social safety net and argue that it should be a provincial government responsibility to provide training, rehabilitation, and employment services for its visually impaired citizens? Would the CNIB support or would they oppose a provincial government establishing a state-of-the-art residential training facility if it was to be managed by a different nonprofit corporation? Would the CNIB ever warn governments that relying on one company to provide critical services to a group of disabled citizens was effectively putting all their eggs in one basket, and the lack of supplier diversification was a risky strategy from a public policy perspective? Would the CNIB ever argue that the blind would benefit from having choices rather than a monopoly when it comes to training and rehabilitation services? Would the CNIB ever issue a public statement arguing that it's deplorable that currently there are no residential training facilities outside of Quebec? Or would they publicly acknowledge that the services for the blind are superior in the United States? Would the CNIB ever donate their historic book collection to the Canada's libraries and then push governments to ensure that they provide equitable library services for print disabled Canadians? Each of the above would benefit blind Canadians, but at the expense of CNIB's empire and the status quo. The fact that the interests of the corporation may differ or conflict with the interests of its clients is one reason why no company, not even a nonprofit, should ever be both a monolithic supplier and consumer advocate for the same group of people. The CNIB reports on its website that its advocacy work, work represents 15.82% of cause-rated expenses. Certainly, the CNIB has a strong lobby and presence in Ottawa. It is asked regularly for comments on federal and provincial legislation that affects the disabled. As a general rule, any government board or panel set up to examine an issue affecting the disabled will include a CNIB representative. However, where is the CNIB when it comes to thorny advocacy issues, such as fighting City Hall over bike lanes that are making it unsafe for blind citizens to use regular public transportation? What have they done to demand that all Canadian transit authorities call out bus stops so blind consumers can rely on taking regular public transportation? What have they done to stop the ever-increasing problem of taxis or Uber drivers refusing to pick up passengers with guide dogs? How many human rights complaints have they supported in the last five or 10 years? The CNIB relies regular, on regular annual funding from the public and governments, and you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Nor are you interested in rocking the boat when you're a monopoly and your number one goal is to maintain the status quo. Unfortunately, CNIB's passive approach to advocacy means that in many respects, things are getting worse for blind Canadians, not better. While the CNIB continues to expand its business empire, services that the agency provided for many decades and benefited thousands of blind children like Camp Bowling have actually ceased operation. I think CNIB's current television commercials are clear examples of why the company should have no role in being an advocate for the blind. In one commercial, a young blind woman is portrayed as being afraid to leave her house because she doesn't have a guide dog. In the second CNIB commercial, a young blind woman appears to be unable to cross the street at a pedestrian controlled crosswalk because all she has is an empty guide dog harness. 
I appreciate that some people depend on their guide dogs for their independence and mobility, but do these commercials represent the public image of blindness that you want to portray to sighted Canadians? People in their 20s, unable to leave their homes or cross the street without a guide dog? Portraying the blind as helpless individuals in TV commercials may help with CNIB's fundraising efforts and their corporate branding, but I can't believe it will help a young person find an employer who's willing to take a chance on hiring a blind employee. CNIB is a nonprofit company, so there are no shareholders or, or owners who expect to be compensated for their capital investment or taking business risk. However, being a nonprofit is a double-edged sword, as the downside of not having owners is it removes a layer of governance and accountability. The management team for a for-profit company is accountable for their results to the owners and to the board of directors who are appointed or elected by the owners to represent their interests. If the owners are unhappy with the results or the direction of the company, they'll fire both the board and the management team. As a nonprofit company, there are no owners looking over, over management shoulders to ensure that they're doing a good job. Nor is there an auditor general to conduct a value for money audit or to issue public statements on whether the organization is achieving Canada's social goals in helping the blind gain greater independence. Instead, as a nonprofit, CNIB's management team assesses their own firm's performance, and like many charities, they rely on personal stories and anecdotal evidence to show a positive impact. Of course, CNIB does have a board of directors, but from a governance perspective, there's a significant difference between a volunteer sitting on a nonprofit board and someone who has a personal financial interest in making sure a company is well-managed and delivers its services in a cost-effective manner. On its website, CNIB describes its board as follows. The CNIB Foundation National Board of Directors is made up of Canada's brightest and most successful industry leaders. Each is a dedicated advocate for the rights of Canadians who are blind or partially sighted, with many members living with blindness or significant sight loss themselves. Currently, there are 21 members on CNIB's board of directors, which is a large board. I had considerable experience dealing with boards of trustees during my career as a pension fund manager, and smaller boards were generally more focused and asked tougher questions of our management team. According to the Wall Street Journal, the optimal size of a board of directors between five and seven. Other groups that focus on governance argue that between eight and 10 directors, depending on the complexity. Anyway, returning to the Monopoly report, we finished it early in 2020. Unfortunately, that was the same time that COVID-19 began disrupting all of our lives and became everyone's sole focus. Initially, Mary Ellen and the executive thought it would be best to wait until things slowed down before we got back to normal. However, after a few months, it became clear that COVID wasn't going away. Therefore, Mary Ellen submitted a report and a letter of complaint to the Competition Bureau on behalf of the CFB. Initially, we had a conference call with a couple of competition officers. They look for specific instances where a company has violated specific sections of the act, such as engaging in uncompetitive business practices or false advertising. However, they did mention another group in their organization did policy papers and promised to forward it to them. When we did not hear back, Mary Ellen sent a letter and a copy directly to the head of the Competition Bureau. The Competition Commissioner sent back a diplomatic response noting that it was their usual role in advocacy was suggesting regulatory or legislative changes to foster improved competition. He saw the CNIB complaint as involving a broader public policy question surrounding the needs of blind Canadians and felt it was outside their mandate. 
He did, however, recognize and appreciate the concerns and encouraged the CFB to bring up these issues with government officials who have direct responsibility for accessibility. The CFB executive followed the commissioner's suggestion and forwarded 21 copies of the monopoly report to government officials and ministers across the country. There were a few polite responses, but no one promised any meaningful change. So where do we stand? Who will be the agents of change? One thing for sure, it won't be the CNIB. Like all monopolies, they will fight tooth and nail to maintain the status quo. Their professional and management staff are well compensated. In fact, recently, Mary Ellen posted to CFB's list the name of 32 CNIB staff members in Ontario who make more than 100,000 a year. Their management staff enjoy a high level of job security and many of their longtime employees are eligible for a monthly pension that is guaranteed by the, by the company in their retirement years. So the CNIB and their staff are clearly looking forward to another century of providing services to Canada's blind and advocating on your behalf. Governments are also unlikely to be the ch agents of change. First of all, politicians and financial bureaucrats believe that it costs government less to let a charity look after the needs of the blind. I would argue that this is being short-sighted on their part. Better skills training and employment services would mean that more blind people would be working and paying taxes rather than sitting at home collecting disability assistance. However, another reason why governments support the status quo is because the general public holds the CNIB in high regard. Politicians are afraid of criticizing the CNIB out of concern how their constituents might react and that such criticisms might hurt them at the ballot box. The media are also leery of criticizing a Canadian institution that many of their subscribers view as a sacred cow. It just seems to be a story that people don't want to hear. Many CFB supporters have told me it is difficult to get letters or articles critical of the CNIB published in newspapers, and certainly I've also experienced this. In fact, after completing the report, I wrote an article on CNIB's monopoly and submitted it to eight or nine uh, national papers and magazines, but none were interested in publishing it. Although I find this personally frustrating, I can understand their reluctance to publish my article. All of these papers and magazines have written glowing stories about the CNIB and are reluctant now to pu publish a critical article written by a sighted person whom they don't know and has zero social media presence. As I mentioned at the outset, the NFB was the agent of the change in the United States, and I believe that there's going to be ma meaningful change to Canada, it will be because of, of the work of the CFB. The CFB is the only blind advocacy group that is militant enough to say our current approach of relying on the CNIB is failing many blind Canadians. The CFB is the only advocacy group that will argue that services for the blind should be a government responsibility and not left to a national charity. Certainly there are roles for nonprofits in providing training services, but there should be a competitive environment with government oversight, not a national monopoly where one and only service provider gets to decide what is the appropriate level of training and services. I appreciate that militancy does not come naturally to us Canadians and the term itself may turn some people off. However, sometimes you need a little militancy if you want things to change. I appreciate that many blind and visually impaired people are also uncomfortable in criticizing the CNIB as they're the only agency that is there to help them. Sadly, I have met some who are afraid to publicly criticize the CNIB out of concern that they may need the corporation's help in the future. I can certainly understand those positions. I can think of no company that has greater control over the lives of its citizens than the CNIB. 
However, blind citizens are willing to bite their lip and tacitly accept the status quo. I fear nothing will change for the better. Too many influential people have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, and the forces of inertia are very strong, as demonstrated by CNIB's longevity. I'm hoping that you new members to the CFB will become the agents of change, not only for yourselves, but also for those that ultimately follow in your footsteps. One of the most important things you can do is follow Dr. Tenbrook's lead and go out and actively recruit more members to the organization. People who are willing to stand up and say that the status quo is not good enough, that it's time that governments include services for the blind in Canada's social safety net. The bigger CFP becomes, the bigger will be your voice, and the harder it will be for politicians and the media to ignore you. You need allies. People from Nels, sellers of accessible equipment, and guide dog schools are all adversely affected by CNIB's monopoly. As for myself, I will try to get media outlets to investigate the issues and concern that were flagged in the Monopoly report and that I've discussed here today. Public support is the cornerstone for maintaining CNIB's monopoly. And it's important that the sighted public come to the realization that just because CNIB and CELA provide service for the blind doesn't automatically make them worthy of being hoisted onto a pedestal. Well, I've droned on for quite a long time. Thank you for your patience. Hopefully now we can open things up for some questions and discussion. Okay, so John, you are unmuted. Thank you. Um, I've recently, Daryl, come upon your wonderful report as, as I found the agenda for this convention. And I want to say that I think all blind Canadians owe you quite a debt of gratitude for your compelling analysis. I, I have I have myself started circulating it to folks in my network across the country and intend to uh, to continue doing that. I, I'd like to connect with you all, all outside of this, this conference to chat strategy if we could. Uh, but just two things. I, there, there are a lot of things that you've said that I would happily have a chance to comment, but I won't. Just, just two of them. The, the CNIB monopoly is is a contradiction in terms. The agency talks about promoting independence of the blind, yet any organization that operates such a cradle to grave operation as that as the enemy does. That's what I call it. Those are my words. Um, inevitably, will 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 create dependency upon itself. That's inevitable. The second point I want to raise is what I call the illegitimacy of its advocacy. It it took upon itself that role, and as you quite correctly mentioned, uh, government takes this opportunity and consults with it regularly, but. What we also know is that we never gave it the right to advocate for us on anything. And I'm not suggesting the positions it takes are all bad. They aren't. But we never gave it the right to advocate for us on anything. That should be our right as consumers. Folks like us who are part of democratically constituted organizations. And after all, we know best what our needs are. So maybe just one question to you, Derek. As a sighted person, I'm curious, what got your interest in in taking on this work? Because uh, I'm curious. And uh, again, I appreciate 
your the contribution you have made to our community. Thanks. Well, um, just just uh, as I mentioned, uh, becoming friends with some blind people, particularly Doris and, and Oriana Belusic, um, and getting involved in, in what what I saw and and the injustice. Um, uh, I'm fortunate in that I'm retired and uh, I have some time. And if I can lend a hand and deal with an injustice, then that's a good way to spend your retirement years. I'm retired as well, so I have some time as well. So I hope we can connect outside of this meeting. So again, thanks, thanks for your work. It's, uh, it's uh, a, 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 a very refreshing commentary that Canadians need to hear. Thanks. You're welcome. Next, we have Justin. Great presentation, dare I say, the best so far during this convention. I'm a, a first-time convention attendee, so thank you for uh, br just brilliantly presenting all of your research. Um, I was just wondering if you could speak to a certain element. I have a family friend who is retired who used to work full-time at the CNIB training people in certain elements of construction and stuff like that, whether it be in, in trades too, whether it be carpentry, welding, that kind of stuff. Um, you talked in your presentation a little bit about the CNIB. Obviously, they don't provide the services like that anymore. I'm just curious to get your take on that and if you know why the CNIB doesn't provide those services anymore because you said, obviously, the NFB is a huge advocate in the States for championing programs and services that help people who are visually impaired and who are blind with employment skills. Well, again, um, it's, uh, you know, you've got a, a corporation that is following the same basic blueprint, I think that they've been using for, for, for many, many years. So um, they provide services out of their, out of their local offices um, and what, what is really lacking, as I say, as I mentioned it at the outset, is a residential training center where people can go and gain the skills, as you mentioned, things like uh, woodworking and metalwork and things like that. And they can get a chance to, to explore uh, uh, avenues that they haven't had those opportunities in the past. Um, I, I think one of the key things that I see from people that that managed to get down to the U.S. training centers um, like Louisiana or the Colorado Center um, is that they come back with renewed confidence in their own abilities. And I can't overemphasize the impact that that has on people's lives. Is you got to be confident in your own ability, and uh, that's what that you don't get that by learning how to memorize a route from here to to your doctor's office. You have to be able to negotiate. Uh, problems and things like road work that, that you're going to encounter. And it, you need to have those skills and confidence that comes, that comes from repetitive practice. And uh, you just simply aren't going to get that from your local CNIB office. Marcia just raised her hand. Great. Thank you. Um, I... <laughs> It just it just occurred to me that that it's it's a fascinating thing what they're doing because back when I was I would say 15 or so so I'm dating myself the late 70s um, the CNIB actually did have a training center in Toronto called the AV Weir Center and they had courses on what they called adjust adjusting to blindness. And 
I think at that time it was the in thing to do, and now guide dogs are the in thing to do. So I, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if the competition bureau would be interested in the fact that CNIB changes its colors according to what the public will pay for. Mm-hmm. That, that's certainly an interesting point. Um, the Competition Bureau is in an awkward spot because normally they get to go against private companies rather than government, and of course they are a government agency, and I think that was one of their apprehensions of, of commenting on, on the case. Um, here, here in British Columbia, one of the things that I, I know that we've lost is, is uh, and, and is certainly dear to the hearts of many here, uh, um, the, the boat Camp Bowen and uh, uh, the, the potential it had to be operated as a training center. Um, but uh, so thousands of kids went through for, for decades and uh, I, it just wasn't profitable enough for them. So they shut it down. And, uh, um, but as you say, Guide Dogs is a great moneymaker. I can't believe all the money that they're going to be pulling in from this program is simply going to go to their Guide Dogs. Uh, it, it's been such a campaign and it, it is one that touches sighted people and they're going to give money. And so I'm sure it's going to be a profitable one for CNIB. And it's, it's, it's so timely because with COVID-19, the American schools can't service their clients and some yep. of them are getting restless yep. and are not going to wait, even though they really should. Uh, <laughs> don't know why anyone would pick a school with zero years of experience over one that has 80. Uh, yep. that, I've never figured that out, but... But they're, they've got a captive audience right now, which yeah. just feeds into it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, even still, if they, the money they collect now, it's going to take two years to, to, to train the dog. So it's not like it's going to be an immediate fix anyway. So uh, it, it's really a misleading ad, which is something you can complain to the uh, Competition Bureau about. They do look for misleading advertisements as well. Good to know. Thank you. You're welcome. Next, we have Doug. Hey, good, uh, good afternoon, Daryl. Thanks, uh, thanks for giving this presentation. This was lovely. I have a question about um, guide dog uh, about the uh, the guide dog commercials. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. I had never, I have not seen one of these, but I applied for a guide dog in the nineties in the early 90s and i had to meet a uh, mobility standard to uh, to before they would even consider uh, 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 sending me to this uh, uh, school in ottawa to get one the main problem i see for at least from your description now i'm repeating i've never seen these commercials but what 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 you're telling me doesn't surprise me is that they are aiming they are giving these dogs to people who have little to no mobility skills to begin with. That goes completely against what I've been, you know, brought up to believe. A dog was something you graduated to after you gained confident mobility skills with a cane. If they're doing this, this to me, this sounds like a very dangerous situation. If, uh, if we don't intervene and, and try to somehow circumvent this. I, I certainly agree with you. And, and uh, um, 
I, I think it's uh, it, it's more though that that this is intended for the sighted audience, not intended um, really uh, for the for the blind. I mean, it, they're just wanting money, and and so uh, the more sort of pathetic they make blind people look, the more likely it is you're going to give money. And and they also will bring in, of course, the puppies. So they have all the puppies. Yeah. So they, they're really hitting everything that's that, that's going to drive um, contributions. And so that's they're pushing what, all the right buttons is what they're doing. But but now, there's a point that I also also thought, which was that that it's really a poor indictment of their poor training skills that somebody would be so dependent that they can't leave their house or cross the street. Without it, with by use of a cane. I mean, is that what they're saying? Is is that they're that incompetent in training? Um, but that's just my take on it. Because you know something, it doesn't. It does not surprise me, because they want to give these dogs to as many people as they can. Because the more dogs they give out I, I suppose they give these dogs to people do they have to pay a fee i'm not sure because i've never applied for one from them but uh, the, the more the more they give out the more the public will see this and the more money they will get so it does it does help them when they give these dogs to people so they are they're probably aiming for as low of a mobility standard that they can get away with. And that's, to me, to me, that's dangerous. I'll, I'll add another little piece. And this has happened to Thelma, my partner. She was downtown in Victoria and, and uh, there was a, uh, a booth set up on the street, um, which was manned by a, a person from uh, a young person from Canada helps who didn't have a clue uh, about guide dogs. And yet um, they, uh, uh, we're, we're, you know, re recruiting or getting money for the CNIB's guide dog program. And basically they just made stuff up and they're doing it like a, a, an adoption agency. You adopt the puppy to, to, uh, um, help a blind person. So they will send you out status reports and things like that. So they're, they're following the same model that many charities that raising money for third world countries and things like that do, which is you, you create a, you know, you, uh, an image whereby you, you, you're helping an individual, you're helping an individual dog in this case and, and a person uh, who ultimately will receive it. But how many people get the same dog? I mean, you know, it, it, it's just a, a fundraising campaign. It, it, that's it in a nutshell. It's a fundraising. Definitely. Daryl, thank you very much. You're welcome. Next, we have Hilton. So, Daryl, great report. Two questions. First of all, are there any other Canadian government agencies, in addition to the competition board, that would uh, take up this brief as a uh, against whatever principles uh, that they enforce? I'll just pick Canadian human rights. And by the way, the gentleman, John, John Ray, you spoke to at the beginning, is an expert in this stuff. Um, so that was more a comment and a question. And the second thing is, looking ahead two or three years, let's suppose this succeeds. And the Bureau says, yes, in fact, CNIB, you are a monopoly. What would you see as the end game of agencies across Canada being, and services to people with lower no vision being, 
with that organization being broken up or disassembled or what do you see as the end game? Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging issue because you can't simply replace this organization overnight. But what I would love to see is uh, governments begin to diversify and begin to choose suppliers, other alternatives. Um, here in, in BC, we have the uh, uh, Pacific Training Institute uh, um, uh, run by Elizabeth Lalonde. And I know that they're trying to do something at, at Bowen Island as well. And, you know, to see if governments would fund those as a competitive service, that would be a, a big step in, 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 in going forward. But really what I would like to see is governments step up and take responsibility and include blind people in the social safety net. It, it, that's really the fundamental problem here, that, that it's not really just replacing one charity with another. It's government saying it's our responsibility to provide training for our blind citizens. And uh, it should not be just left to a nonprofit to determine what is the appropriate level of service. I'm going to pass it on to Blaine next. Um, I actually am one of the blind people who worked for CNIB uh, right around the time that the puppies were coming um, coming around. And uh, you talk about the commercials, um, but even the write-ups, uh, the, the wording they used of life-saving dogs. Um, I don't know if you saw, and I can't remember exactly where, but there's a, they've sent out recently a fundraising campaign and it's not a $5, $10, help us out, $200. They want thousands of dollars as a starting point. Um, and I kind of got to see, I, I, I'm one of those, you know, I got to do CNIB camps and, and back then, for all I knew, it was great. Um, but when you become 20, you kind of get pushed off to the side. And um, so I'm, I mentioned it to Mary Ellen quite a bit. I'd love to do what I can to make it so that CNIB isn't the monopoly. I'm not saying disband the organization. Uh, because it is great to have choice, but I, uh, I like what you wrote. I completely agree with it because I've seen it. I've worked with it. I was actually one of the fundraising people, and it was hard as a blind person to, um, to send out letters to people uh, when I didn't believe it. Um, so great for writing it. Um, I've circulated it, and... I will continue to circulate it um, to more and more people if that's the only thing I can do. But if there's anything else, I'm definitely on board. So thank you for writing it. And um, that was just my, my piece. Um, you guys mentioned orientation and mobility. I do know that basically to get a guide dog through them, um, you basically only have to have a couple of routes memorized and that's it. And, so, and you can get a dog uh, because it's supposed to get, supposed to get you out of your house and you're going to have your life back. Um, I'm a grad of another school uh, and I did not jump ship like a lot of 
fellow grads from my school did. And I'm actually going to New Jersey next week here to get my second dog from them. So um, I'll stay with the States. But yep. thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And next we have Brian Moore. Like others have said, Daryl, we owe you a real debt of gratitude for producing such a concise summary of the issues um, dispassionately, which is really important. Um, <clears throat> so here in Ontario, we have a, a bit of a weird situation in that government has sort of taken on that responsibility um, for funding what they call uh, vocational rehab services. So things like daily living skills and orientation and mobility, but <clears throat> they did it with a sole source contract. Um, as far as I know, and I did do some digging, there was no bidding for vision loss rehabilitation Ontario to get the contract. Uh, it was straight up, you know, here, we're going to split our, CNIB will split ourselves into different political structure, like a different <clears throat> political structure for the sole purpose of, of gathering more grants. Uh, very similar to the Sela story all over again. Uh, I can't see in our current political climate that we would get much traction on our government should take more responsibility for people that it's quite prepared to dismiss um, the other thing is that, you know, if, if we're going to advocate for diversity in the, this industry, there has to be other players. And while there are in areas like tech sales, uh, with the exception of Victoria, there really aren't in training, um, life skills, et cetera. Um, I love the Pacific Training Center. I think it's brilliant. I wish I was closer because I would love to participate in it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to comment on that and echo the message that, you know, I've encountered too when I've talked to people, the, the disbelief, like, no, you must be misinterpreting or you must be bitter. or, And even if you come at it with pure, purely factual information, um, it's a story many people aren't willing to hear. Some are. Um, but it's worth keeping going and we can get there. Anyway, I will mute myself. Thank, thanks again, Daryl, for great work. Well, thank you. I, I will add that I do think one of the, their Achilles heel is a monopoly issue that, that people still can relate to the fact that they remember what it was like with the phone company and, and, the, and the cable company when they had to deal with one firm and how frustrating that could be at times. And, and so they may be able to relate to that and, and the fact that there's no need to have one company provide all these services across the country, that, that, that competition is, is, is key to our, our whole economy. So, so why is this, this area different? There's no, no reason for it. And so that, that's one thing I would comment. The other, the other thing I would add just a little bit to is that in many instances, the difference is, is when, when government gives a grant versus a service contract, with a service contract, yeah, there are standards that have to be employed and there's a competitive bidding process in, the most, in most cases, but there's also a, a, an accountability, greater accountability. If government just gives away a grant to a nonprofit corporation, whether it be the CNIB or it be a food bank, 
there's there's not as many strings attached and and so moving that direction and it it is really critical that that there is a greater accountability of service provider to the government that that's just some overview thoughts sir um next is barry toner thank you very much uh hi there guys yes so um just over here from Ireland and Daryl unfortunately I didn't catch all of your talk but I came in when you were talking about the the guide dogs in particular um, and I don't know whether this is useful information for you guys or not but uh, as a cautionary thing what I would do is point towards guide dogs um, w when considering any potential arguments towards uh, CNIB's guide dog program because uh, I just caught a wee bit of it there, and it sounds very, very similar to what Guide Dogs UK have been through, I'd say, for at least maybe since 9-11 happened. Um, and the, the dog quality has just fallen off completely. It's all it's all over here concerned about pub, uh, PR, about getting the money in. Um, uh, the BBC In Touch programme over here. Um, which is um, it's a show focusing on uh, just uh, blind and, and visually impaired people. They had all sorts of complaints in because of some of the Guide Dogs UK advertising that was being put on television, um, presenting us as just pathetic and, you know, the usual stuff. Oh, my life. Uh, you know, I had no life until I got the dog. I mean, no, the dogs are great and all that kind of stuff. But the dogs and the quality that's being pumped out there now is horrendous. And I honestly would urge anyone to look at guide dogs uk it's a cautionary tale it's not over and what have they done because it's all about money it's all about spreadsheets and people up in the ivory towers making decisions on on visually impaired people's behalfs given quality controls out the window they're giving dogs over to people the dogs aren't capable for working it's not for in the dog it's not for on on the people uh, on the uh, client or the guide dog owner uh, and as you can tell i feel very very passionate about that well, thank you. A very good comments. Next is Richard Marion. Thank you, Daryl, for writing the report. It's it, like others have said, it's very concise and really brings the issues forward. So I think a couple of points. Uh, um, the fellow from Ireland mentioned about the guide dog program. And I think we have to think that we have to probably more specifically to the guide dog issue. There are other guide dog schools that use the same sort of tactics for publicly fundraising about about how how uh, how like that the guide dogs are basically uh, save people and are are major life changing events and I I personally view I viewed my relationship with my guide dogs as a, as, as a symbiotic relationship we were equal partners I looked after them they looked after me in in certain situations so it was it was a partnership and and I that's how I would tell people in the public but of course with CNIB and the guide dog. Uh, doing guide dogs now they're just reinforced trying to reinforce the view that they're all things to all blind people but I think the as far as the public education part uh, like we have to definitely start with the people that we know as well like so educating our our friends work colleagues and then it then it sort of kind of spreads out from there as well too because I, they're they're shocked they, they, there's a lot of people that that we know in our own lives that are as shocked as people on that are in the general public on the street that CNIB it is what it is and uh and and if if we convince them that they'll do their bit to convince other sighted people and then and then then that'll make the political change and and as far as single source contracts go i think the the thing that the thing that we could probably do is 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 hold government to their own public tendering guidelines like governments and 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 government agencies 
have clear guidelines about when things go up for public tender. And if they're single sourcing rehabilitation contracts, that's, that's something that the general public needs to be more aware of as well, too. And that's about it. Thank you. Good comments. M. Bradford re-raised their hand. I just wanted to caution, uh, I wanted to caution you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that what, what he is talking about is quite disturbing to me because more and more here in the States, we're getting this type of real uh, disturbing behavior by so many of the agencies across the country. And I just want to, I want to thank this gentleman for having spoken today because it's going to be the basis of a lot of uh, good things. And I think that's going to be great for all of you because the guide dog situation is something that can get to be quite steep. Thank you. Hilton has uh, their hand up. Hi, uh, Daryl. So you talked about the Achilles heel uh, that uh, they are a monopoly. So another Achilles heel is that the whole idea of nonprofit has a halo of credibility around it. But in fact, all nonprofit means is that whatever money is left over at the end of the year gets plowed back into the organization, comma, almost like any other, <laughs> I said comma there, almost like any other corporation, they're just not giving out a dividend. So it doesn't mean necessarily that they're doing a good job. It doesn't mean necessarily that their executives aren't being overpaid. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're accountable. All it means is that the money just stays within within the organization. So that's another Achilles heel uh, to go after. Yes, and, and, and that's a very important point. Um, uh, again, uh, I think people have this impression that nonprofits uh, are, are, are a superior uh, creation, and they can be. But, you know, again, it, it, there's not that much difference between a for-profit corporation and, and a uh, nonprofit. Uh, they're both in a business, and, and CNIB is in the business. Exactly. Andy Mack. Daryl said, be militant and fight tooth and nail. And I, he made a lot of things that made me angry today. The essay should be shared to everybody. It's just one of those things that... You know, nobody talks about this stuff. And I think it's so important that this is getting out more and more. So I also do think that, you know, anger is, is something that it's hard not to be angry with this stuff sometimes. But some, in some ways, I just feel more frustrated because I don't quite, I'm not as much, I'm, I'm just not really an angry person naturally. I'm more of a, I don't know how to explain it. It's just, I just feel this frustration. And again, it's this, it's in the back of my mind all the time. And I don't know what to do about it. And it's this constant frustration, but I try not to get angry because if you're, if you're just angry about it, it's, things aren't really going to get done properly. You have to approach it like Daryl did with such a factual article there. So I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point because if, if you get into a rant and, and it's very easy to do and you're very justified in doing so, um, it, it, it just turns people off and they don't listen. So, uh, again, just tell them your truth calmly and explain the situation to them and uh, 
hopefully they'll understand. I don't know if you'd be ever interested in us this somehow getting released as a, as a podcast or something or having this recording out there somewhere. Because I just think even for blind people, you know, listening to this recording, I think would have a huge effect. I, I am always happy to help in any way, you know that. Great. Really appreciate awesome. it. Alrighty. Next is Mary Ellen Gabios. Daryl, what you have done is to articulate what many of us have felt for years and you have done it clearly and concisely and we are grateful to you for the work you have put in. Uh, there have been other reports and other criticisms levied. I remember the DASM report in the 1970s. Uh, CFB organizationally will continue to do everything we can to make sure that this story is told. But for anyone in this audience who wants to personally do something, we'd love you to join with us in, in CFB, but what are your thoughts of what individual blind people can do to augment the work that you've done and to share it and to raise this issue in a way so that 30 years from now, another group of blind people won't be gathered in whatever platform we gather then and saying, I wish something could be done about CNIB. It's a, I recognize it's a marathon, not a sprint, but uh, I think it's time we work together to make an impact and I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough one. I, I, I don't see a, an easy answer to it, but I think that the key is to follow the lead of the NFB down South that you mm -hmm. just simply have to push for your rights to make sure that the public is aware. I, I, you know, one thing I found about the sighted people is there's initially disbelief when you, when you tell them that, that, the CNIB is not the, the, the charity that they think it is. But it doesn't take very long until a light comes on and they recognize it. Um, and so it's really, it's how can you get your story out, whether it's through the media? And, and I do believe the politicians will follow the public. If the public begins to understand that it's not meeting the needs of the blind, then the politicians will follow behind and they will, they will look to make change. And it is going to be a gradual process. Um, but but the only way it will happen is really if if uh, blind people are willing to stand up and say this isn't good enough. So you are and suggesting what? that we each uh, find leave here committed today to tell five people in the public what we know to be true, and preferably people who might have some influence. But uh, you are saying what. It is all of our jobs to make this story no longer a story known too well to us, but ignored and unheard by the public. Exactly. I, I couldn't say it better. To read the full report, go to cfb.ca. Send us an email. Outlook on RadioWestern at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB and on Facebook, facebook.com 
slash outlook on Radio Western. <laughs>